This is a teaching message from Church of the Living Water of Austin. Listen, we've been talking about grace and giving and the call to stewardship. And just real quickly to make sure that we are on the same foundation, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. There's some, some, uh, some, some key passages of scriptures that we're going to get into in First, First Chronicles. And so if you want to look in your, your, your index to try and find out where Chronicles is, you can start doing that now. But just to make sure that we remember where we started from. We said that, that really the, the whole purpose of this teachings is that we, there, there's, a, there's a great need. There is a great need for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to be seen in the lives of those that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is a great need for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to be seen in the lives of those that believe on Jesus Christ. Especially in this ministry, that, that we have confessed that He is Lord, that we have declared that He is our Savior, and now is the time for there to be a manifestation, for it to be evident of His power working in and through us. We, when we talk about stewardship, we say that stewardship is caring for someone else's property with the goal of improving that property, of bringing it to a state of perfection, of bringing it to a state of completion. That when you're a steward, you're, you're not a steward of your own possessions. You are a steward over someone else's property. That you're a steward over someone else's property. And you're not just idly handling it. But you have a specific intent in mind. That you want to that, that bring that property into a state of completion, into a state of perfection. And how do you know, how do you know that it's not what it needs to be because of the master's instructions? That there is a desire, that there is a yearning from the master. And so he appoints stewards to bring that out, to bring that possession into a state of perfection. Stewardship, it's, it's administration. It's, it's conducting, it's, it's supervising. It's the management of resources that are entrusted to your care. The steward is the manager of the house. They, they look on the needs of the whole house. And they, and they determine, well, how can I arrange the things that are in the house to be most effective for those that live in the house? How can I arrange the resources in the house to be most effective to those that must eat of the house. And so the steward, they're, they're, they're not concerned about just what they have to do. They're not concerned about just, what, about just what they look like, about their appearance, about the impression that they make. But they look across the entire, their, their area that, that they've been given a, a authority over, and they're saying, well, how do I make this even more excellent? How do I utilize all of these resources for the most benefit? We said that when we look at, at, at mankind's call to sure, in, in Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
In verse 9, And out of the ground made the Lord to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and a tree of life also, in the midst of garden, and a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we, can't, we cannot skip over, we cannot gloss over that, that the garden, it comes from the Lord. He is the one that planted the garden. He is the one that makes the provisions. The garden comes from the Lord. And also, out of the ground, the Lord is the one that makes every tree to grow. That He is the one that causes it to bring forth fruit. He is the one that causes it to be profitable. That the garden comes from the Lord. He is the one that's responsible for the ground to become fruitful. And then if you jump down to Genesis 2, verse 15, it says, And the Lord took the man. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. That the, the garden comes from the Lord. He is the one that is responsible for making the garden fruitful and productive. And he is the one that he, he takes the man. He takes the man and places him in the garden. And he gives the man an instruction. He says, your instruction, man. I'm not asking you to make the garden. I'm not asking you to cause the garden to be fruitful. That's all on me. All I'm asking you is to respond to the call to keep and to dress the garden. And this is what we call stewardship. This is what we call stewardship. Each one of us has a personal responsibility. We have a personal responsibility to manage the resources of our lives for the glory of God. Acknowledging that He is the provider. And that He is the one that brings forth the increase. We are all personally responsible for managing the resources of our lives. Acknowledging that God is the provider of all things and that He is the one that ultimately brings forth the increase. We say that in, in, in understanding this, that we have, to, we have to first grasp that stewardship is so, is so important. Stewardship is so important. Stewardship is so important that it can only be entrusted to servants. Stewardship can only be entrusted to servants. It's not something that you can hire out. You can't contract in for stewardship. Stewardship can only be entrusted to servants. Those that have placed themselves under a master. Those that have submitted themselves to authority. Stewardship can only be entrusted to servants. We said that the servant, the thing about servants is that in Scripture, there, there are many types of servants. Kings were servants. Those that, those that were of low estate were considered servants. Those that were from far off lands were brought in as servants. But, you know, none of that actually was, was, was of any uh, a reckoning because a servant, they're not judged according to their own merits. They're not judged according to their ethnicity. They're not judged according to their internal characteristics. They're not judged according to where they came from or the connections that they have or what they bring to the table. 
But a servant is only judged by the commands that are given to him by his master. The servant is only judged by his obedience to the commands that are given to him by his master. You know, a lot of times people say that they want to be God's servant. They want to, they want to say that, 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 that they are here to help. And, and, and they say, well, I, 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 I deserve this position or, or you need to put me in this place because of what I bring to the table, because of my organizational skills, because of my administrative skills, because of my, my training, because of my upbringing, because of my connections. But listen, in stewardship, none of that even matters. Because the servant, they're not judged according to any of those things. Nothing, nothing in your own merits qualifies you for servanthood. It's only your obedience to the commands given to you by the master. That's, that's, the, only thing, that's the only thing that we judge a servant by. We said that a servant, they're judged by their obedience. They're judged by their faithfulness. They're judged by their, by their diligence. Their obedience to what is spoken by putting themselves to the word that is spoken, by putting themselves under orders, by submitting themselves to authority. A servant is judged by their faithfulness, by their, their trustworthiness, by their truthfulness, their ability to be relied upon. That a servant is judged by their diligence. A servant is judged by their diligence. That diligence, that's thoughtful effort that's directed towards effectiveness. A servant is judged by their diligence. Their, their thoughtful effort that's directed towards effectiveness. What does that mean? It, it means that, that, that even though the servant has the ability to do whatever they want to do, but they're, they're judged by how they apply themselves to being the most effective. An example is, uh, is, is Paul. He talks about how when he was with the church in Thessalonica, that, that he says that, that, that you saw how we behaved ourselves when we were with you. That there were some that, that they came and they, and they tried to, 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 uh, to, to, to use their, their call to ministry in order to spoil you, in order to take advantage of you. But when we came to you, we worked with our own hands, providing for our own needs. And, and in addition to that, in addition to providing for our own needs, we also expounded the word of God to you, providing for your needs as well. That's, that's stewardship. Providing for our own needs, but also not just being concerned about ourselves, but, but spending the extra time, the extra effort, the energy needed to provide for your needs as well and teaching you the word of God. Why is that? Because we wanted the words that we were speaking to have the most impact. To have the greatest effect in your lives. And so it was not about filling our bellies, but it was about making sure that the teachings would reach you, would reach you. The servant, they, they have to recognize that, that, that their lives, that their very lives, and all that they possess, that their very lives and all that they possess are in the hands of their master for his benefit. 
too often, especially in this country, we, 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 we give such a bad rap and, and we say that, you know, we, we, we're no one's slaves, we're no one's servants, no one is our master. But we, we, we forget that, that in, in order to be stewards, in order to, to receive what God has, that we have to put ourselves in a position of servants. That there's nothing in my life there's nothing that I have that's for my benefit. There's nothing that God can't touch. There's nothing that God can't touch. There's, there's, there's no house that He can't touch. There's no car that He can't touch. There's no hour of the day that He can't demand of me. And I am at His service. If you're going to be a steward, you have to... You have to you have to be a servant. You have to be a servant. We said that a, a servant, because nothing belongs to them, that, they're, that, they're, that that which is entrusted to them, the talents that they are giving, that they are given according to their ability. That the, the charge that is placed in their hands is given to them for their own ability. And we use the example in... in a, in Matthew chapter 25, where we talked about how the, 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 the servants, the, the master, was Jesus was, was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And he wanted them to understand, in order to understand this, this, the kingdom of heaven, the, the concept, I'm going to give it to you in a parable. I'm going to give you a natural example in order to, to, to uncover a spiritual truth. And so he began to talk about a master that gave unto his servants talents. And then he went on a far journey. And he called his servants to account for what he had given them. And one of the things that, that we said is that what the master had given to the servants was far in excess of what they could have gained on their own, in their own lifetime. This is just, this is just review. That what the, what the master gives to the servants... Is far in excess of what they could have gained in their own lifetime. And the servants, they were then charged with taking what the master had given them. And it says in Matthew 25 that the servants, they went about into the marketplace to trade. And so that, that's, that's another area where, where I feel like God is speaking to, to this ministry. He, he's saying that, that for, for all that I've given to you, for all the gifts that I've given to you in time, talent, and abilities, that what are you, do what are you doing with what's been given to you? The, the example of the good servants is they, 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 they took what God gave to them and they went into the marketplace to trade. What does it mean to trade? To trade is to, is to engage in, in an exchange, to, to interact with those that have a need based on your abundance. To go and to search out and to find those who have a, a deficit that can be benefited from that which you have in plenty. Now, those that, those that have a deficit are not going to be those that are like you. They're not going to be those that came from the same place that you came from. 
They're not going to be those that come from the same background and experiences that you came from. They don't speak the same way. They don't, they don't view life the same way. But they have a deficit. And so it is, it is, it is required of us to take what the Master has given to us and to trade, to go into the marketplace. And those that, that, are, that, are, that are missing, that are lacking, that are saying, where is justice? Where is justice? That are crying out. Where is, where is peace? Those that, have, that, that feel as though that they, are, they are empty on the inside. That are completely disconnected. That have been made idle, having no purpose, having no direction for their lives. That we've been called to go into the marketplace and to trade, to trade, to trade. To say, for your, for your transgressions, mercy has been granted. For your sin, justification is available. For, for your rags, robes of righteousness are made available through Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things about the master when he gave the servants their talents and he went on a journey, he came back and he asked them, he says, what have you done with what I've given to you? What have you done with what I have given to you? And so we wanted you all to understand that that. That Christ, He does not condemn you, but He is going to hold you to account. That He is going to question you. What have you done with what I've called you to do? And the, the intention of the questions is not to cause you to sorrow. It's not to, it's not to put you in a final state of judgment. But it's to reveal to you what your condition is. The intention of the questions is, is not to put you in a state where you are judged and you cannot redeem, be redeemed, but it's, all, it's to show you what is your condition. And we ask you to, to, to ask yourselves, to question yourselves. Are you, are you where God has placed you? Are you where God has placed you? To ask yourself, what is the work that God has given to you? What, what has He put into your hands? What is that thing that, that, that you know is within your power? That God has given to you? And how are you using that to serve? How are you using what God has given to you to serve others? To serve others. So what I want to get, get into tonight is that when we consider what God has given to us, one of the things that servants have to understand is that they don't have the, they don't have the discretion to use what the Master has given in any way that they want. A lot of, a lot of people have been, have been taught, they've been taught in times past that, that, that whatever God has given to you, that it, that it can't be taken away. And so therefore, I can do whatever I want to with what God has given to me. 
they say, well, if God has given to me the, the ability to sing, then I can, I can sing wherever I want to and, and use whatever words I want to use. And I can use profanity and I can, I can denigrate people and I can, I can marginalize people and I, I can say whatever I want to say and incite people to all kinds of emotions and feelings. And when I get my awards, I can say, thank God for this gift. That if God has given me gifts in administration, that I can go out and I can, I can, I can, I can accumulate assets and I can, I can accumulate things and stuff. And I can exercise power over men. And I can pull them away from their families and, and drag them across the country and drag them across the globe. And tear up the fabric of communities. All for my own gain. And, and as, long as, as long as I write a check to the university... And as long as I say that, you know, well, you know, God has given me the power to gain wealth, that, that, that it's all, that it's all well and good. But the servant, the servant does not have the ability to use the resources that were given to them in any way that they choose. They don't have the ability to use the resources. They need to align, they need to align to the master's purpose. They need to align to the master's purpose. God asked Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam, he, he hid himself. He'd gone and he sold leaves for clothing. He tried to, to do his own work to justify himself. And then he began to make excuses but just know that God did not accept any of those excuses. And God does not accept any of your excuses. You can never defend yourself when you are in a position that is outside of authority. Because a servant is one that has placed themselves under authority. You can never defend yourself when you are in a position that is outside of the bounds of authority. Your situation is not an excuse. The relationships that you have, the people that loved you, the people that didn't love you, the people that didn't care enough about you and didn't, didn't show the concern and the appreciation, none of those are excuses. Your insecurities, your insecurities, they're, they're, they're no excuse. None of those things are excuses. Just remember that the servant is not judged according to their own merits. God is not choosing you and giving you these talents based on your relationships. He's not giving you these talents based on your situations. He's not giving you these talents based on what you feel secure in. The servant is only judged according to his obedience. His obedience to the master's commands. And so, no, Christ, he's not condemning you, but he's going to hold you to account. He's going to hold you to account. And obedience is what produces a clear conscience towards God and man. Obedience produces a clear conscience towards God and man. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three, 
verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. And it says that it's, that, that it, that it's good if people speak evil of you when you actually are, are, are being obedient to the will of God. That there you're not, you're not looking for the favor of men because you're, you're only concerned your only concern is the master's command. And so in, only, in order for you to, to have a good conscience towards God and man, in order for you to be obedient, we're going to have to open up our ears. We're going to have to open up our, our hearts. We're going to have to call to the Lord in prayer. You're, you need direction from the owner in order to properly manage his possessions. You need direction from the owner in order to seek out the intended purpose. And so we wanted to go through this example of seeking the Lord in prayer. And one of the examples that I find in Scripture continuously is, is in the life of, of David. So go to First Chronicles chapter 13. This is the man that God has placed over the nation. He's given him a stewardship. He's given him a charge. He's given him a responsibility, not just for himself, but for the nation. And it, the scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. That his desire, that his passion was for the Lord. But, but don't you know that, that you have to be matured? That you have to be matured in your walk with Christ. And so this is after David has, has finished his... Um, he, he is establishing his kingdom. And, and the Lord has, uh, has allowed him to have victory over Saul, the previous king. And now all the nation is coming to David. And David is finally able to look after some things. And so if you go to First Chronicles chapter 13, we're just going to read a few scriptures starting with verse 1. It says, And David consulted with the captains of thousands, and hundreds, and with every leader. And David said unto all the congregation of Israel, if it seem good unto you, and that it be of the Lord our God, let us send abroad unto our brethren everywhere that are left in all the land of Israel, and with them also to the priests and Levites, which are in their cities and suburbs, that they may gather themselves unto us. So David took a poll of the people. He inquired of the people, of, of those that were in leadership, of those that were captains. It says, every leader, David asked. David asked. David asked. 
you know, one thing it doesn't say in here, it doesn't say that David asked God. It said that David, he checked with all of the heads, all the dignitaries, all of y'all in protocol. Those are the ones that David checked with. It says, guess what? Guess what? I have, a, I have an idea. And let me know if you think it sounds like, if you think it sounds like a good idea. David forgot that a, a servant is not judged by his popularity. A servant is not judged by opinion polls. But a servant is only judged by his obedience to the master's commands. And look at verse 3, it says, And let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not at it in the days of Saul. And all the congregation said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. David said, it's, it, it's been a while that there, there is a need for the presence of God. That there is a need for righteousness. That there is a need for justice. That there is a need for judgment. Now you've got to understand about the Ark of the God. The Ark of the God it represented the presence of God. It represented the power of God. When, when, when offerings and sacrifices were brought, they were brought to be, to be burned before the altar of God. So that of that altar, the blood would be taken. And that blood would be carried in for forgiveness of sins for the entire nation. So when I say that, what does the altar of God represent? It represents the people's call for justice. It represents the people's call for judgment. It represents their call for a righteous standard. They said because when Saul was king, everybody did what they wanted to do. Whatever you were strong enough to do, you did. Whatever was right in your own eyes, you did. But, but there must be a standard for justice. There must be a standard for how do we get righteousness back in our land? But again, the people, they, they ask themselves, they ask themselves. They didn't ask God. They didn't ask God. A brother asked his brother, brother, how do we get justice? Brother, how do we get our due? And I love it. It says that. That the people that they, 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 they began to, to devise plans. The people that began to devise schemes of their own imaginations of this is how we're going to get justice. This is how judgment will be returned to the land. So go to First Chronicles chapter 13. Just jump down to verse 7. It says, and they carried the ark of God in a new cart. They carried the ark of God in a new cart out of the house of Abinadad. And Uzzah and Ahio drave the cart. And David and all of Israel played before God with all their might and with singing and with harps and with psalteries and with timbrels and with cymbals 
and with trumpets. So just imagine this. The brother said to the other brother, how do we get justice? How do we get judgment? He says, I have an idea. I have a, I have a design. And they begin, to put their, they begin to put their designs to work. But God is not pleased with their ingenuity. He says, we're going to make a whole bunch of noise. We're going to raise up our voices and clap and shout so all the nations can hear and see and know that we demand justice, that we demand judgment. But God, God was not pleased. He was not pleased with their noise making. God was not pleased with their own devices. And He was not pleased. He was not pleased. It was not praise unto Him. To Him, it was just a tinkling symbol. It was a, if you can imagine, it was an untuned instrument. It was just noise. It was just, it was just, it was just noise. First Chronicles chapter 13, verse 9. And when they came unto the threshing floor, Chida, Uzzah, put forth his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him, because he put his hand on the ark. And there he died before God. And there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, wherefore that place was called Perez Uzzah to this day. And it says, and David was afraid of God. David was afraid of God that day. Saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? After all their planning and all their schemes. After all the noise that they made. For days on end. Crying out for justice. Crying out for judgment. Saying that we're going to bring back righteousness. God was not pleased. And this man sought to touch the very presence of God. He sought to touch the ark that symbolized the very presence of God. And he died. And he died. He died. And it was then, and it was then that David finally, he became afraid. David became a say, wait a second. Hold on. I'm not the boss here. I'm not the ultimate authority here. There's someone that we need to be afraid of. You people. You're not the ones that that, that, that I need to please. He became afraid. He became afraid of God that day. That day, saying, how is it that I can bring the presence of God to me? How is it that, that, that I can bring a righteous standard? How is it that we can have justice and judgment without God? How can we claim to have righteousness and not 
and not have God. Not have His direction. Not have His leading. And so David became afraid that day. We said before in the, in the previous teaching that, that, that fear, what it does is it, it, it can do two things. Fear, it can produce shame, which leads to hiding. It can produce you feeling as though this, 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 this deficit that I have is going to be uncovered and seen by all people. And because of that, I'm going to try and hide and disguise my deficit. We say that fear, it can also produce reverence. Fear can produce reverence. And reverence leads to action. Reverence leads to action that, that, that because I'm afraid, I'm going to order myself according to that which I fear. I'm going to align myself to that which I fear. I'm going to place myself under that which I fear. I'm going to have reverence. You know, God, God is holy. God, God is holy. He, he cannot be mixed with this world. God is, he can't be mixed with that which is common. God is holy. He stands alone. He stands apart. He will not allow a little leaven. He will not allow a little sin. You cannot achieve that which is holy by that which is unholy. You cannot establish authority by overthrowing authority. You cannot engender, create, cause love to go forth when hate is coming from you. God is, God is holy. He is, he is truth. He is life. He is love. We can't say that, that we are pro-life when our design is to take away life. We can't say that, that, that we love God when we hate our brother. We can't say that, that we are the children of the Most High when we only look at the truth that's convenient to us. God is holy. He is separate. He is set apart. You know, God's truth is so truthful that even when it hurts, it's still true. That when it affirms our position, God is true. And that when it, when it restrains us, He's still true. He's still holy. One of the things I want you all to understand is that evil men, evil men will only bow before a holy God. 
evil men will only bow before a holy God. You may think that you've caused someone to submit to your will and to submit to your demands, but they're just laying in wait. What was done in the light before, now they're doing behind closed doors. What was out in the open, now they've systematically programmed it in. You can think that you can make evil men bow to your will and to your words, but evil men will only bow, will only bow to a holy God. How do you know? How do you know? Because I did. Because when I was in sin, the only thing that caused me to go to my knees was a holy God. Because you did. When you were right in your own eyes. When you were justified in your own eyes. The only thing that caused you to turn from your way and to seek a true standard was a holy God. So we can't, we can't go out and, and, and try to say, well, we need to conform to a standard of morality. We need to conform to, a, to an appearance. God is calling the church to lift up a standard to show the world a holy God. To show the world a holy God. You know, as I, as I looked at this, one of the things that, that I was struck by was when Solomon was dedicating the temple and, and how the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. How the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And I was so struck by the way that those words were phrased that, that the glory of the Lord would fill the Lord's house. How God would be God over his own house. How he would have reign and rule in the hearts of his own people. That no man would glory. That the priests, they couldn't even stand in the presence. Evil men will only bow. They will only bow to a holy God. So listen, what is fear? Fear produces action. Fear produces action. Reverence produces action. Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 14. We're going to press through this. 1 Chronicles chapter 14. David has been, he's been rebuked. He's been chastised. The noise that he was making, the agreement that he made with the people, God was not pleased with that. The ingenuity of the people, God was not pleased with it. Now David has learned to fear the Lord. He, he, thought, he thought he knew the fear of the Lord before. He thought he knew the fear of the Lord before. But now he's learned to fear the Lord. Many of us think that we know to fear the Lord already. But look, God has is, God is given you a new call. He's given you a new task. A new challenge. And now we need to learn to fear the Lord once again. We need to fear the Lord as though we, as we have never feared Him before. We need to trust Him like we haven't trusted Him before. 
Why not? Because we didn't need Him. We, he, the, the burden was not what it was before. The obstacle was not this big before. The task was not this great before. And so now we need to fear the Lord as we have never feared Him before. We need to reverence Him as we've not reverenced Him before. First Chronicles chapter 14. We're just going to read verses 9 and 10. It says, And the Philistines came. And the Philistines came. You thought that when you, you thought that when you started following God, everything was going to be good. But now the outside is coming in. Now the pressure is coming. See, before it was God just chastising you in the house. Now the enemy is actually coming against you. Learn to fear God when the teaching is going on in the home. So when the enemy comes, you have an answer. And the Philistines came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephan. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? And wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto him, Go up, for I will deliver them into thine hand. Here it is. David is surrounded. David is surrounded by men. David is surrounded by his enemies. But he doesn't go to his captains. He doesn't go to the leaders. He doesn't check with the people. He doesn't take an opinion poll. He prays to God. He says, Lord, what's your will? What's your desire? What's your will? What is your desire? He says, Tell me what to do. And I love the second question. He says, and, and, you know, if I do what you tell me, am I going to be successful? Am I going to overcome? That, that, that's, that's a bold question. He's, he's saying, God, are you, are you setting me up? Am I going to go in here? And lay down my life and have nothing to show for it? Am I going to be able to be successful in what you're calling me to do? You know, I like to believe that David's answer would have been the same no matter what God said. That if God had said, you're going to go and you're going to defeat the enemy, or you're going to go and you will fall that day, that David would have still gone. You know, sometimes we, we, we want to say that, well, God, if we go and we do this thing, that we need to be successful on the very first try. Or else maybe God didn't say it. You know what? God said, do it. He said, do it. Even if you're not successful, do it because you're obedient. Do it out of obedience. God says, go. And you're going you're to be successful. You're going to be successful. But what we really see the fear is, you know, it's easy, it's easy to follow the Lord when he's, when he's telling us that, that we're going to be successful. Where we really see the fear is where there's something that we want, but God says something else. Jump down to verse 13. So he defeats the Philistines in this one case, but just know your enemy is, is coming back. He's coming back for another round. And the Philistines yet again spread themselves abroad in the valley. 
Therefore David inquired again of the Lord. Therefore David inquired again of the Lord. I just love that he did not take the counsel of the Lord for granted. He did not take the presence of the Lord for granted. He says, Lord, the challenge is coming upon me again. I have no shame about asking you once again, what is your direction? What is your leading in this area? I'm not too proud to make the people wait to hear from you. I'm not too proud to make the armies wait to hear from you, to hear what you have to say. Because I'm not going to lead your people out if you don't lead me. I'm not going to waste the resources you've given in a way that you did not intend. No, I'm going to follow your direction. I'm going to follow your leading. And it's good that he waited because, and the Lord said unto him, Go not up after them. Turn away from them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. So God gave him a different strategy. He gave him a different tactic. This is what I want to say. Sometimes, church, we get so caught up in a way that, that things worked in the past. And what we used to do. And what used to happen. And the way it used to be. That we have forgotten to inquire of the Lord again. Say, Lord, this is the same thing that we saw 20 years ago. We saw this 40 years ago. We saw it 60 years ago. How are we supposed to address it? And the Lord says, listen, I don't want you to do what you did then. I have a different way for you to address it this time. Hear. Hear the word of the Lord. I have a different way for you to address it. You know, I don't have time to get into it, but, but this, 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 this just speaks to how the, the Lord spoke to the, the, the prophet Elisha when, um, when the armies had surrounded him and, and his servant couldn't understand how they were going to escape because there were more people against them than the arms that they had. And the Lord, and, and Elisha, he, he prays. He says, God, open up the eyes of my servant so that, so that he can see. And, and, and what God shows him is that, that they were actually, that the, the army that had surrounded the prophet was actually themselves surrounded by angels, by, by the Lord's angels. And you would have thought that God would have gone on and used those angels to strike down those men. And to kill them all. But that was not God's design. Instead, he struck them blind. And he used the prophet to lead that army back to the king. The king that was seeking his life. Because God had a more excellent thing in mind. He had a more excellent work in mind. God was not thirsting for the lives of those people that were coming against his prophets, that were seeking to take the lives of his prophets. God had a more excellent work in mind. God wanted to win the kingdom. 
He wanted to win the kingdom. And he knew in order to win the kingdom that his word needed to be spoken. That the king needed to see a holy God. He needed to see a holy God. A God that was above and outside of what he could even imagine. A standard of righteousness. A standard of love that was beyond what he could even imagine. And so God gives David this new strategy. He shows him how he's going to defeat the Philistines. And then in verse 16, we're looking at 1 Chronicles chapter 14. Jumping down to verse 16, it says, David therefore did as God commanded him. It says that David obeyed. David obeyed God. And they smote the host of the Philistines from Gibeon even into Gezer. And it says, And the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought fear of him upon all the nations. You know, the fame of David, it wasn't about David. The fame of David was not about David. It was about his response to the call to stewardship. It was about his obedience. It was about his faithfulness. It was about his diligence. It was about him seeking the Lord in prayer. He says, Lord, this is what you have put into my hands. You give me the instruction. You give me the direction on where we need to go, on what we need to do. And because David was afraid of the Lord, because David had reverence for the Lord, because David had reverence for the Lord, because David had reverence for the Lord, nations all around, all around, they, they saw a holy God. They saw a holy God. Because only a holy God will cause evil men, will cause evil men to bow to their knees. This has been a teaching message from Church of the Living Water at Austin. For more information about our ministry, please go to our website at livingwateraustin.net. Thank you.